0: You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14-16. through 16. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that, if I delay you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God a pillar and buttress of the truth great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness he was manifested in the spirit vindicated manifested in the flesh vindicated by the spirit seen by angels proclaimed among the nations believed on in the world taken up in glory this is the word of the lord Amen. Father, we are thankful for your word. Help us to understand it. Help us to love it. Help us to fix our eyes on Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Howdy, everybody. It's good to see you all this evening. Uh, if you're new to Christ Church, perhaps you've, this is your first evening here with us tonight, or you've joined us in the last couple of weeks, uh, we believe that the regular preaching diet of certainly our church, but perhaps any church ought to be uh, the working of our way through books of the Bible. Not only are individual verses best understood when they're understood within the context that they're written, what comes before and after it, but also within the context of the entire book. But also it forces us into topics and conversations that are difficult, uh, but conversations that are difficult, but that God, in his kindness and wisdom, uh, thought it necessary that we have. So undoubtedly, like an eight-week series on money or on parenting or or on like Marvel movies or something might be beneficial for us, Uh, and while it would have been a whole lot easier and less controversial for us to not have some of the conversations and sermons that we've been thinking through the last couple of weeks, I think our church will be better for it for years to come, even if you still don't find yourself agreeing Uh, But we are, here at Christ Church, people of the book. We are a Bible people. Uh, We're doing our best to understand and be transformed by the whole of it. If you don't own a Bible... uh, Perhaps you might use one of the black Bibles there in front of you. Uh, We're working our way through the letter of 1 Timothy. You can find that in the table of contents there at the beginning. Uh, The translation in that one might be a tad different. But if you don't own a Bible, we've got several on this table over here. We'd love for you to take one of those and begin to read it. And if you begin to read it and you have no idea what you're reading, uh, just ask someone nearby if they would be your trail guide. Uh, I told you two weeks ago that I thought that once we got past chapter 2 of 1 Timothy, that it would be all downhill from there. But uh, I think we're going to still go uphill for one more week. Not necessarily that it's like, really hard work this week but I think that chapter 3 verse 15 of First Timothy is like the continental divide of the whole book. Like if you had a water dropper and you dropped a few drops on verse 15 of chapter 3 some would flow this way towards the beginning and some would flow that way towards the end where Paul says uh, how one ought to behave in the household of God. This is like his purpose statement. I'm writing these things to you, Timothy so that you, ought, you might know how one ought to behave within the household of God. It's a pretty good purpose statement uh, for the entire letter. So if you were to drop a few drops of water on verse 15, some would flow back towards the beginning uh, about elders, about deacons, about men and women in the church, about praying for governmental leaders that they might allow the household of God to then be able to conduct and live their lives in peace and in good works. That The water would continue to flow towards the beginning where Paul is trying to correct false doctrine and harmful leaders who might divide the family of God, the household of God. Or that they might flow the other direction towards the end uh, where Paul is thinking towards a life of thankfulness and right doctrine uh, where chapter 5 is like an entire family charter. How young men and older fathers are to interact with each other as well as interacting with younger women and older women. How widows are to be treated and cared for. How elders are to be treated and even corrected. And chapter 6 ends with a charge for the whole family, the family of God, that they might be marked by a life of good works and godliness that the world might see and know God. So this, this little phrase, the household of God, it just goes in both directions for the whole of the letter. So before I read these short, But packed three verses, just one more time for us. Let me tell you where we're headed. We're going to think through these verses in just two sections tonight. What the household of God is, and then who the household of God is. So one more time together, perhaps with our Bibles open this time. Let's read verses 14 through 16 of chapter 3. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you, Timothy, so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. So what the household of God is. So Paul... We've seen over the past many months, Paul has left his young pastor-protege, Timothy, in the Turkish city of Ephesus, where they had previously spent some time planting a church together. Paul is now likely traveling traveling around. He's checking on some other churches in Macedonia. And he tells Timothy that he hopes to make it back to him. He wants to come back and check in. He's not just saying, see you later, Uh, good luck, I'm never going to hear or see you again. He hopes to make it back. We don't actually know if he actually did make it back or not before he was arrested again and ultimately executed in Rome. Either he does or he doesn't. But Paul is saying, ultimately, that's okay. Because I'm writing you a letter now so that I can tell you in written form what uh, the things that I would most urgently say if I were with you. If I were to prescribe or correct in person if I were there in Ephesus. Here are the things. Most notably, that Timothy would better understand how an individual person ought to behave in the together household of God. Now this is the third time that we've seen this word household within this chapter of chapter 3. We saw it two weeks ago and then last week. That a qualification for an elder or a deacon is that he must manage his household well. We thought together two weeks ago that if someone is already caring for his family well, then this is the kind of person that the church ought to be looking for to manage the larger family, the larger household. So what was an almost implication so far in this letter, now Paul is going to make explicit. That Christians who are living together within the life of the church They're overseen by pastors, they're served by deacons, they're built on sound doctrine, but they're together the household of God. They are a family. Not like a pretend family, where we can pretend to be brothers and sisters or something like that, but they're the actual family of God. This will make a lot of sense to many of you. It will be harder to comprehend for some others perhaps. For some maybe even the minority of us us in this room. You grew up in a uh, family where your parents are perhaps still married uh, especially if uh, they were both Christians. They were taking you to church. They were uh, teaching you the scriptures. They were cultivating a unity and a love within your home for perhaps your other siblings. They cultivated discipline and an expectation of like helping out around the house and within the family. And for many of you, you brought these expectations of your own family into the family of God. For many of you though, who perhaps weren't Christians, Growing up, your parents weren't Christians. Perhaps you grew up in a broken home with a divorced parents. Perhaps you didn't even know, you don't know your father, or perhaps he was not helpful or very present. Perhaps your home was never a place of warmth or of rest. Perhaps as soon as you were able to move out of your house, you did. You never looked back. And perhaps just as easily, you have brought those expectations of your family into this family. Nevertheless, no matter our upbringing, I think the majority of our modern American expectations of what a home ought to be, whether you're you're married, whether you have kids or not, we all roughly have the same hopes and expectations for our homes. Whether you live with a spouse and with children or with roommates in an apartment or whatever it may be. I think for the modern American family or individual, our homes are generally all about rest, about retreat, about relaxing, about entertainment, right? Like, I can subconsciously or even consciously fall into this kind of thinking. The the kind of thinking that it's been really hard out there this week or this month or even today, so I can't wait to get home to get back in here, like outside or inside from all of the crazy. I need shelter where I can can relax, I can rest, I can just binge on Netflix until I fall asleep, then I'll go out tomorrow back into the crazy, but then, praise the Lord, five o'clock is gonna come and I get to come back home and do it all again. Now, there's nothing wrong with resting, there's nothing wrong with relaxing or entertainment, there's nothing wrong with Netflix. The problem becomes if instead of some wonderful byproducts, some wonderful benefits of our homes, those benefits being resting, relaxing, retreating, entertainment, if those very things become the very reason for existence for our homes, they become the very first priority of our homes. So that if something like hospitality, even long-term hospitality, begin to infringe on those first priorities of our homes, well then that's just too much. But these expectations of home family life inevitably carry into our church family lives as well. How we relate to our homes, how we think of the functions of our homes are usually a reliable indicator toward how we will relate to our Church families as well, right? Like, the world is crazy out there, and perhaps then this can just be a place of rest or of shelter. Entertainment even can become some of our highest values for what we hope that our church will be. And when those values become infringed upon, well, then that just becomes too much, Two gals, uh, Rosaria Butterfield and Hannah Anderson, have been particularly helpful for me in the past six months or so in confronting some of these expectations of my own heart. And especially Hannah Anderson has been helpful in showing me that the, in, in the local church, in local churches all over the world, God has created little families all over the world with mothers, with fathers, with sisters and brothers. And the first family that God created and commissioned with a job as we've thought through in the past few months, or the past past month or so, Adam and Eve, uh, it's perhaps best for us to think of them as like a frontier couple, like an 1870s like Kansas couple. Let's assume for the sake of the illustration that they aren't like manifest destiny uh, white family who expects to take all the land from the native peoples or something as their birthright. But that this family, this Genesis 1 and 2 family on the frontier has been given a job. They've been given a job to take the peace that they have experienced with God out into the chaos of the world. They are not only meant to keep, work and keep the garden, but they are meant to be faithful. They are meant to multiply and then fill the earth, subdue the earth, and make the chaotic world out there mirror and look more and more like the peace of the world that they experience here. They're an 1870s family. The, the weather and the weeds are against them as they seek to establish and increase a growing homestead of like corn and wheat and other crops that they might not only feed and bless themselves, but they, they, might, they might feed and bless the entire world. And this is the kind of family that Jesus has now created in the family of God as he gives them a very similar commission in Matthew 28 to go and to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that he commanded. This is essentially the same thing that God the Father gave to Adam and Eve, that the new covenant people of God are to fill the earth with God's glory by multiplying themselves taking the peace of their knowledge of and their relationship with God out into the world, not retreating from it. And so the family of God, the new covenant family of God, this family that we are all sitting amongst right now is like an 1870s frontier family. And a frontier family must have every member pulling his or her weight, working for the family or else we're all going to die. There's certainly time for relaxation and rest when all the work is done, when we have provided for ourselves and for the world out there. It is something to be enjoyed in spare moments between the work and between the moving the chaos into order, but not as a first priority. The problem is, is that unfortunately, many, if not most of us, assume that our churches are not 1870s frontier families, but like 1956 domestic families, where the father, the pastors perhaps, are meant to do all of the work. The mothers will do the important work for caring for the domestic life, but then perhaps run out of things to do, or perhaps begrudge that there's not more work for them to do. The children will have nothing to do but play. The teenagers will have nothing to do but play. The grown adult children will feel out of place and a little listless until they get married and have their own children and begin their own homes. Does any of this sound familiar? But if we are a frontier family or if we're basically any kind of family in the history of the planet before the Industrial Revolution, if we are not a domestic family of just peace and entertainment, but if we are a family business, if we are thinking about generations, if we are thinking about building the estate, if we are thinking about the inheritance, then this carries implications for all of us. Adult sons and daughters, perhaps, as a frontier family or perhaps any Family in Europe or anywhere in the world before the Industrial Revolution who are not married, adult sons and daughters, they're not waiting on their own marriages to begin their lives. They're working hard within the family business that they already belong to. One outworking of of this idea is the idea of sonship. We talk a lot about sonship here, about the idea of being a son or daughter of God. But when we talk about being a son or daughter of God, In your mind's eye, when we talk about you being a son or daughter of God, at what age do you typically place yourself? I think I generally do as like a seven-year-old, right? A seven-year-old son which can be a helpful image as we relate to God as father. We find peace and identity with him as father. We find security with an belonging to the safety of the father. We don't have to earn his acceptance. All of that is so valuable and helpful as we think about what it means to be a son or daughter of God. But in the New Testament, the idea of sonship, I think, is most often very different than that. Not talking about a seven- or a ten-year-old son or daughter, but generally of adult sons and daughters. Think about like, nearly all of Jesus' parables. And nearly all of them have some sort of a son. And the son is not a little boy, but he is a grown man. Often there are adult son brothers, Right? or even Jesus' identity himself as the son of God. He's not an adolescent, prepubescent little boy. Sonship is generally, in the New Testament, and in fact the whole of the Bible, about the adult son who carries about the father's business. He acts in the name of the father. He carries the responsible of integral work to further the family's interests in the father's name. In the New Testament, the sibling relationships that we more often see are not brothers or brothers and sisters of a seven and a ten-year-old brother and sister, but of adult sons, adult brothers and sisters who are in their like 30s or 40s. Many of us don't really have this kind of existence with adult siblings. They may exist, we might have adult siblings, but we live in different states now. For the first time in human history, we are now regularly, regularly removed from our biological families. In our culture of geographic mobility, of parents in nursing homes, of siblings strewn all across the country and the world, our familial existence is totally different than that of the time that Paul is writing, which is one reason why I think many of us young parents freak out so much. Not only do we not have our parents nearby to help us in child rearing, but for many of us, the very first diaper that we've ever changed in our life comes on the first day of our brand new infant son or daughter. Guilty. The very first diaper I changed was Owen's diaper 10 years ago. Sorry, is that embarrassing? Yeah. We're removed, most of us, from our nieces and our nephews, from our baby cousins. We aren't up close and personal and always observing lessons in family life and in parenting from our extended family that we are living amongst and with, of our being necessary, needed, single adults as aunts, of uncles, of sisters, and brothers, of being adult children. Now, this isn't necessarily an evil thing, right? Otherwise, Marcy and I would be moving back to Texas or Florida to be with our families, we are geographically removed from them. But it is a new reality that I'm not sure that we've necessarily thought through the implications of. We, I think, tend to think of ourselves more as isolated and family-less free agents, which is one reason why it can make it feel like you're in some sort of limbo until you get married. Singleness can often be disorienting because we tend toward talking about sons and daughters as children as brothers and sisters, as children. We have lost what it means to be adult brothers and sisters, adult sons and daughters. It's not a passive receiving of sitting in daddy's lap, but of doing the work, of providing, of being engaged in the family's business, each member integral to the family's life, married or single. So when the household has a mission, every member is vital to it. When the household has a goal, has productivity, not just relaxation and of rest. You need the productivity of both husband and wife. You need the productivity of sons and daughters, of aunts and uncles, and of grandmas and grandpas. On the frontier, everyone must carry and pull their own weight for the benefit of the family, or they will not survive. And so it would do us well with all the questions that we've been asking over the past month or so about men and women in the life of the church to rather than asking who gets to do what, rather, that that kind of a question is more like a corporation, right? With functions and tasks where managers get to do these functions and these people don't get to do these functions. But if we are instead of thinking ourselves as a corporation and rather as a family, how do we best live together as a family? Rather than Sunday gatherings, this time, right here. Rather than this being like a weekly staff meeting where we all sit around the conference table and one guy gets up and addresses the employees for 35 or 40 minutes every week. Rather than that, how is this more like a family meal where we gather together, remembering, eating, drinking, being with one another, encouraging one another for the week. Rather than our... Three times a year member meetings being more like shareholder meetings, rather, they are more like family meetings to consider and pray for the direction of our family. We are not a corporation, we are the household of God, the family of God. We need to think of evangelism as bringing forth birth, as Jesus describes it, as regeneration, a second birth, rather than just recruitment to our organization. We're not just making a multi-level marketing sales pitch to some dupe out there, right? Yeah, like becoming a Christian is going to require lots of work for your first couple of years, but then you increase a couple of levels and then you just get to sit back and reap the benefits. This is not the kind of marketing sales pitch that we are making. What we're doing is a physical and spiritual process of rebirth We need to think of discipleship as parenting, not just orientation training, like your first week at work. Like new jobs require orientation that takes about a week, right? You walk into the office, you don't have a clue what's gonna go on, so uh, your HR manager meets you at the door and gives you your ID and shows you your desk and you fill out your W-2 and then if you have any questions during that week, you go and ask the HR manager, but then after a week or so, you're expected to just kind of know what to do from here on out. So they've kind of worked with you for a week or so, and then you'll figure it out as you go. But if we are a family business, and if we are not just a corporation out there, if we are raising children to be productive, mature contributors of this business, then this takes time. It takes patience. It takes commitment. It will mean, it will mean more hands-on time, not with just our biological children, but with those who are coming to faith and who are young children in the faith. Whether they are 25 or 65. And this kind of patience and commitment will take a lot of hands on uh, initial time that will then begin to look different as, they, as this person grows and matures. As we'll see in chapter 5, our church relationships should be seen as siblings, not as work colleagues. You are not colleagues, you are brothers and sisters. We need to be in a position where we don't lust after one another, but also relate with our sisters and brothers in the same way that we relate with our biological sisters and brothers. It's not a pretend relationship. It is a real relationship. The Genesis 1 and 2 family is fruitful because it is clear with its purpose. It is unified in its relationships. It is working hard with everyone pulling its weight and contributing. It is outwardly focused and oriented and not inwardly retreating. The chaoses of the world outside are not inconveniences, but are rather opportunities for more peace to be known through God. And why? Because in also describing what the household of God is, Paul says that the household of God is the church of the living God. We're not just a sentimental collection of people pretending to be family. We are family, which is the very church of God church of the living God the building what we are as Clint was describing for us in our call to worship from Psalm 122 we are a collection of living mobile stones that God has stacked up upon one another that he might live and dwell within us so that he might dwell on earth that's a really weird thing that I just said That's like, I mean, we, we talk about these kind of like big, heavy, weighty theological truths, but what I just said is crazy. Like, let's make Christianity weird again. Because it's really, really weird that the eternal God of the universe, who existed before time, has created the world filled it with humans and now this side on the cross desires to dwell on earth and so he does so not in a building but within people and that he uses these people to then move and scatter so that he might dwell on earth in places where he is not currently dwelling that's weird but it's amazing And Paul is writing all of these things to Timothy in Ephesus, where he likely would be reading and could look out the window and see up on the hill one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Anybody know what this is? The temple of Artemis, or the temple of Diana. Like, you should Google this when you get home. Don't do it on your phone now. Next month, when we're in First United Methodist Church, we could put it up on the screen if we so desired, but not yet. But what Paul is saying is that you all people, you family of God, is the place where the living God dwells. That huge building the, one of the seven wonders of the world is a dead empty building for a dead empty God. Goddess. There's nothing there. There's no power there. There's no life there. You want to know where the power of God is? Within you. Incredible. So You, the family of God, is the place of the living God. I was glad when they said, let us go to the house of the Lord. This is the image to which David was looking. Perhaps if he he didn't even realize it when he's writing Psalm 122. That God would dwell fully amongst his people. Not just nearby in a building, but within them. So this building is not the house of the Lord, but this is a bunch of living rocks stacked up on top of one another. And when all of this is happening, the family of God, the church of the living God, when all of this is happening, then that family, that church, fulfills a hugely important function. It acts as a pillar, as a buttress of the truth. The temple of Diana had over a hundred Ionic columns. All of them were over six stories tall. Like, seriously, you should really Google this. It's it's an impressive building. And the reason why they needed 106-story tall marble columns is because the roof was made of marble as well. The entire temple is made out of marble. And if there weren't this many pillars holding up this marble roof, the whole thing would crumble. It would not be magnificent. It would not be one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. There would be nothing to see there. It would just be a pile of marble. But with the pillars, the temple is a wonder of the world. With the pillars, the glory of this temple is visible for miles, miles and miles away. And this is what the church is. It is not the thing that is glorious. The church holds up the thing that is glorious. The church is like the prongs on an engagement ring setting. It, the, the prongs, there's nothing great about them. But what do they do? They hold on to, protect, and display the thing that is actually glorious, the diamond. The church holds on to, protects, and displays the beauty of Christ, the glories of the gospel of grace. And this gets us to our second section here, who the household of God is. In many senses, we've spent the past 30 minutes or so already thinking about who the household of God is. But in other ways, the household of God actually becomes who they are when they are centered around what Paul describes in verse 16. Paul is saying that the mystery of godliness, do you see this? The mystery of godliness, what was previously hidden, how to actually live a godly life. The people of God perhaps did not know this on this side of the cross. But now that the mystery is made, has been revealed, now that the mystery has been shown how, how to live godly lives, it's all about Jesus. A community that is shaped by the life, by the death, by the resurrection of Christ. Now the mystery is revealed. Now they can live lives of godliness. And what Paul is doing here is likely quoting from an early hymn that was becoming well known. In the ESV, perhaps in your translation, if you have something different, you you can see this uh, second half of verse 16. It looks, it's like indented. It looks like a poem. And most of the translators of our English translations have done this because this is likely an early hymn that is being sung by Christians around the world, around the the Mediterranean world. You want to know how to be the family of God. You want to know how to be a pillar and a buttress of the truth. You want to know how to live godly and otherworldly lives well to put it in a modern uh sense you want to know how to do all that well in christ alone who took on flesh fullness of god in helpless babe this gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save paul is just quoting him you want to know how to how to live godly lives as the family of god and support and pill, be a pillar for the truth let me tell you about jesus it's incredible this first century's hymn, the musical and poetic reflection of Jesus that formed and then solidified a family that transformed lives and brought forth godliness, is this. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And just like we don't have the sheet music for any of the Psalms, I so wish we had the sheet music for this. We could Maybe Matt can write us some, a new melody for this. Uh, but we could all sing this with the last 2,000 years of Christians. And these are not just like biological bullet points from the history book about Jesus of Nazareth. Like just biological bullet points that we might tell of George Washington or something. Like no one is singing songs about the biological bullet points of George Washington these days. Like, he was born in Virginia and may or may not had an incident with a cherry tree. And then he became a cartographer and then a general and won the revolution and then became president president. right? Like we're not singing about George Washington in this kind of way. Perhaps early Americans were. They were basically deifying him in the late 1790s. But while George Washington might be, even today, like a model of dignity and honor for us or something, George Washington has no present power to transform your life. None. You know why? Because he's dead. George Washington is dead. Just a skeleton with maybe some wooden teeth. Which, what was it? Hippopotamus bone. Supposedly, not just wooden teeth made some teeth out of hippopotamus How How's people in America getting hippopotami? Anyway, I digress. Uh, George Washington has no power to transform your life. Jesus does because he's alive. The biographical details of his life are not just some take it or leave it interesting factoids about some dude that lived 2,000 years ago. Each of the lines of this little hymn that Paul is quoting, each of them, when they are put together, they have the power to turn your entire life upside down, to transform your very existence into eternity. It's incredible. Folks have been trying to make sense of or figure out the structure of this hymn for 2,000 years, but a commentator who I found most persuasive says that these uh, six little lines are made up of three contrasting couplets the first couplet focuses on the revelation of Christ, how he was revealed. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit. He was manifested in the flesh. The second person of the triune eternal God became a human being, shown to us in the flesh. He lived as a human with all of our shared and common human frailty and weakness, our shared and common temptation. The very God of the universe. It's amazing. And then at the end of his life, he was vindicated by the Spirit in his resurrection. That is, as Paul would write in Romans 1, 4, that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. He was shown to us in power. He was vindicated to Israel, to Rome, to the world, that he is who he said he was, the Christ, by his resurrection. And the second couplet focuses on the witnesses of Christ. He's seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, heavenly angels and earthly nations. One group of witnesses are supernatural, one group of witnesses are natural. Beginning with that very first night of angelic proclamation, where our friend Linus tells us, glory to God in the highest, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Witnessed to by the angels. And then on the morning of his resurrection, where the very angels say, why do you look for the living amongst the dead? He is risen. We have witnessed it. And then this news went out and is still going out today to the farthest reaches of the world. That even though we are not visible witnesses to the risen Christ, all of us, all of his people are witnesses to the power of his grace and the reality of his resurrection. All of creation, Natural and supernatural are witnesses to him. And then lastly, the third couplet sings of the reception of Christ. Believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Throughout John's gospel, we saw last summer that uh, the world is the world of this realm. The world of blindness, of darkness. Blind to the goodness and the glory of the realm of God. And yet many within this realm, within this world of blindness and darkness, are believing and are seeing and are honoring Jesus as Christ, as the the king of creation. And not just here on this world, but then Paul says he's taken up in glory. He is crowned as king of creation in glory as well. Like, can you imagine the shouts of glory on that first night of Jesus' birth? The angels singing Hosanna in the highest, he is born. Can you imagine how much louder and how much more joy filled those shouts of his resurrection and his ascension must have been? How incredible it must have been at his return as they sang, as we sang earlier in the service, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. He's taken up in glory. What's the point? What is the point of all this, though? What's the point of this kind of song thrown in the middle of elders and deacons and the family of God and all... Why in the world would Paul write this? Because only this kind of Christ, who lived among us and for us, only... This kind of Christ, who is not just a good teacher, but was God, who was king of the world, was king of heaven, was king of creation. Only this kind of Christ, who lived for us in love, and died for us in love, and now lives for us in love, has the ability to make us into his family, has the ability to make us his very household, has the power to transform us into lives of godliness, this and the rest of this letter is not just a pep talk to go live better lives. Paul's going to have a lot to say about our character, about our living lives of godliness, but he is not just giving you a pep talk to make better decisions this week, to maybe start forming better habits. This is not what he's doing. This is a letter to encourage Timothy, the Ephesians, and you to fix your eyes on Jesus, who has lived, bled, died, and has been raised to life for you. The things we look at and behold, the things that captivate us, actually change us. This is why Robert Murray McShane has famously said, for every one look to the self, take ten looks to Christ. Don't just look down and beat yourself up with all of the ways in which you have failed this week. We ought to be growing in holiness, but that will not just come from willpower that will come from a Christ who gives you the power. The things we look at, the things that we behold, change us and transform us. When we are merely looking at and beholding political news, we will become cynical. When we merely behold social media, it will make us envious. It will make us discontent. When we merely behold Netflix or entertainment, it will make us lazy. But when we behold Jesus, he will make us like him. Behold the Christ. Behold the Son of God. Family, brothers and sisters, let's look to Jesus. Let us fix our eyes on him. Let us fix our eyes on him on Sundays. Let us fix our eyes on him in our gospel communities throughout the week, in our discipleship groups. These are not just Things for us to just come confess our sin, or uh, they're, they're not weekly confessional booths. These are times for us to fix our eyes on Jesus, to behold him, and to be transformed by him. Let's fix our eyes on him as we go to work, as we drink coffee, as we eat our meals, with our biological families, with our spiritual family. Let us fix our eyes on him as we sing to him, as we sing about him. The times that we sing and pray in this service and throughout the week are not just things that we do out of habit or that's the way that Christians have done them for always or something. Think, behold the risen Christ and give him your worship as you are singing about him, as you are singing to him. And as we now approach the table, As we come together as the family of God, let us fix our eyes on him. This is not just a ritual. This is a time for us to remember and to be transformed by the body of Christ broken for you, by the blood of Christ shed for you. This is what binds us together and what transforms us together. Let's fix our eyes on him even now as we come and are transformed. Let's ask that he might do that. Our triune God, our Father, we pray that you would show yourself glorious. We pray that you might by your spirit, you might lift our gaze, that you might fix our eyes on your son, that we might not just worship him, not just give him worship because that's what we're supposed to do, but that by seeing him we might be like him. That you might transform us more and more, knitting us together as your family in this local body, that you might help us to love one another more, serve one another more, that the chaoses of the outside world might not be inconveniences to us, but that as a family we might move with your peace towards the chaos of the world. Help us to love you with greater passion. Help us to love our neighbor with greater compassion. Fix our eyes on Jesus, we pray. We pray for these things for his sake. We pray these things that your glory might be pillared, might be buttressed, might be supported and displayed by us, your people. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ's church, visit www. Dot Christchurchabq.com